I didn't know anything about software engineering, and I wanted to have a product that had some software elements to it. And I found a guy who I thought was going to be a great software engineer. And I'm like, we're going to hire this guy. We're going to make him the CTO. We're going to give him stock. He's going to own like a, a chunk of the company to, to motivate him, yada, yada, yada. Turns out he wasn't a good software engineer, and I had no idea. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to episode 42 of the MedTech Podcast. You join me, your host, Karandeep Singh Badwell. Under this episode, I have Ali Packhouse, CEO and co-founder of InstaFloss, creators of an automatic flossing solution providing 360 degrees coverage all in 10 seconds. Ali is a serial inventor and two-time founder. He started his first company, Singular Sound, with his brother in 2013. They have since gone on to launch eight additional products, and in 2017, he and his team created the first device that automatically flosses all of your teeth in 10 seconds. InstaFloss. After five years of research and development, InstaFloss is ready to change the world and has pre-sold $2.5 million and has over 41,000 people on their waiting list. On this episode, he delves into the crucial topic of dental hygiene, specifically the importance of flossing and uncovers why so many people still avoid this crucial habit despite its many benefits. He also explores the fascinating world of invention, including the process of sifting through ideas to determine which ones are worth pursuing, navigating investor relations, and the ins and outs of running a successful Kickstarter campaign. It then goes on to some surprising insights into the unexpected challenges of starting a business, and even gives us a glimpse into his thrilling hobby of wild camping. Welcome to the show, Ellie. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure having you on. So the topic of flossing is something that we're often taught, especially when we go to the dentist or when you're young and sometimes in schools, you're told, you know, flossing is really important. But how important is flossing your teeth? And why would you say that so many people overlook the importance of it? Well, yeah, so th those are those are uh, two separate questions. And the funny thing is that the, the second question would, the answer to that sort of flies in the the face of the first answer. So the first answer is it's very important because about 70% of the surfaces uh, of your tooth are not going to be reached by brushing your teeth. We're talking about in between your teeth. We're talking about underneath the gum line, underneath the gum line of full 360. And these, these are areas that are just not reached by brushing. Uh, but are reached by flossing. And so it's very important. There's uh, a whole list of studies on um, flossing in particular, uh, not just flossing by itself, like uh, that would be covered by brushing, but flossing on top of brushing. So if you're already brushing, the additional benefits of flossing in terms of uh, gingivitis, in terms of, of, of plaque, in terms of how that inflammation in the gums influences so many other things. And so you would think that given how important flossing is and, and how Frequently, people are reminded of this whenever they visit their dentists, if they do. Uh, you would think that people would do it pretty often. Uh, however, 70% of people in the United States, and I only say the United States because that's where at least I have found good data. I imagine it's you know perhaps a greater percentage worldwide, but 70% of people in the United States regularly skip flossing to the point where they practically never floss. We could say that they don't floss. And... You know, that that's astounding. That is a very high number for something that everybody knows is important and everybody knows they ought to do. Um, 
So, so I did uh, dig further into the research to find out, well, well, why? So it, it actually isn't uh, to what I can find an education problem. People know they should floss. Um, but the issue that they have is number one is that it takes too much time. They're like, ah, I've already brushed my teeth. It was already a struggle to do this. Uh, so I don't want to do something in addition. I feel like I've accomplished my good deed for the day. Uh, they say that it's painful, which honestly, many uh, um, methods of flossing truly are painful. And so I could see why someone wouldn't want to do that. Like brushing can feel cool, but flossing certainly doesn't for many people. And the third thing and it is that flossing is hard to do correctly. And people are 100% correct about this. If you look at studies and you divide them into two groups, one where people floss themselves uh, and uh, the other where dentists flossed people, and you compare that against a non-flossing group, the people who floss themselves are almost no different from the people who didn't floss. Whereas the people who were flossed by dentists see tremendous benefits. So what is perhaps more disheartening than the fact that 70% of people don't floss is that the 30% who do likely aren't seeing very many uh, benefits that we know they could receive. So following on from that, how exactly did you come up with the idea of InstaFloss? So how exactly did you find that this problem existed? And then what made you make that decision to say that you're going to create a solution for this problem? Right. So the first step is understanding not only that there is a problem, which, you know, is, is sort of intuitive, you know, you can sort of empathetically say, I have an issue, everybody I know has an issue. Honestly, within two weeks, I probably had 10 different people say, hey, you are an inventor, you've made products before, I hate flossing, can you make something that solves it? So, you know, uh, so, so we know that there exists an issue, and you can research just how big that issue is. But understanding the specific pain points tells you what direction your solution needs to go in. So we know that people dislike flossing. Their top three reasons are that it takes too long, so we have to make something fast. It is uncomfortable, so we have to make something painless. And that they are not getting the results even if they do floss, so we have to make something that reduces the human error where someone who doesn't know how to floss properly can use it and achieve a good result. And, and so then you go to the drawing board and you're like, okay, how do we come up with this sort of solution? So I would say the first um, paradigm that, uh, the first scratch paradigm, I would say that the first realization that I had was that the device would be, would, would, would solve more of these issues if we used water rather than string. So Water flossing, and there's 50 years of publications on this, water flossing can remove more plaque, can uh, clean in areas that string cannot get a full 360 around uh, uh, the tooth. It can uh, reduce gingivitis to a greater extent, uh, and so on and so forth. But in addition, it's also, um, it's also more comfortable because it could be adjusted to the user. So we knew that if we started with water flossing, we could achieve more of these, we can address more of these top complaints. The issue with water flossing is that, oh, well, the issue with current generation water flossers are twofold. Uh, number one, you have to aim them at 90 degrees to the gum line and not miss any areas to get the results that you could um, in a laboratory. So, you know, uh, in a laboratory, they're 
performing this exactly correct, but then, you know, when people go home, they're, they're not at all. So people, you have the same sort of issue where people don't know how to do it correctly. And the second issue is that in, if you are doing it correctly, if it takes even longer than string. So current generation water flossers take the number one complaint about flossing and they make it even worse. And when you take the number one complaint and you make it even worse, either people won't do it so much or they're going to do it very lazily uh, or quickly or haphazardly and they're going to miss areas and they're not going to get results. And they're going to come back and they'll be like, oh, I'm using a water flosser. And you look in their mouth and you're like, well, it looks like you're not using anything. So then the, the conception actually went through a few phases. The first concept that uh, we actually came up with was a mouth guard that goes into your mouth and we had jets go in between each one of the teeth. Uh, and then you press a button and the jets do it all simultaneously. But then there were two issues with this. One, you'd have to create a custom mouth guard for each customer, which would make it stupid expensive. And the more expensive it is, the fewer people you are going to reach and solve it for. You know, if you're solving flossing only for a very small subset of the population, you're not going to achieve much. The Second thing we realized was with a mouth guard that flosses in between teeth, we're only getting interproximally. And one of the advantages of water flossing is that it can clean a full 360 degrees, uh, 360 degrees subgingivally. So if we were to go with the mouth guard design, we would be jettisoning one of the top benefits of water flossing. So there was just two strikes against it. So we're like, okay, how do we get the jets to go a full 360 degrees around each tooth at the correct 90 degree angle. And the concept that we came up with, oh, and also where we can mass manufacture it so people can actually afford it. Uh, the concept we came up with was an H-shaped mouthpiece device. Uh, the top of the U goes over your top teeth. The bottom of the U goes over the bottom teeth. There's a swivel joint in the middle that can rotate a full 360. And that way you can start with the H over the molars on one side. And then the jets come at a 90 degree angle. So from both sides, so they can clean the uh, front and backs. And this way we can get a full 360 degrees around each tooth. And then you rotate it from the back molars all the way to the other side to the other back molars. And this way within 10 seconds, we can provide 100% coverage at a 90 degree angle that has water jets that clean a full 360 degrees around each tooth underneath the gum line as well as between the teeth. And uh, that was the conception where we realized we could actually create a solution that is mass manufacturable, that is fast, comfortable, and reduces human error. So following on from that, as a serial inventor, what would you say is the process that you go to to firstly identify problems that you want to solve? And how exactly do you determine if there even is a market for that solution? Um, so that's, uh, so so. I have a journal of, of products that I want to come out with. And I have a five by five ranking system, uh, which means I have two variables and I each rate them uh, one to five. And, and I'm sure other people have different methods, but this is just mine. Uh, the first is how uh, big is the, the potential market for this? You know, how many people would this actually solve for? So, you know, where one is like just myself and five is literally everybody. And then the second is uh, how 
difficult would this be to create where one is like oh i can make this in an afternoon and five is like you know nuclear fusion nuclear fusion would be a five by five uh wherein the the applicability is for everyone but the the ability to create it is rather difficult so you know i can sort of rank these things based on you know what i have the bandwidth for and what I think is worthwhile. So if something is, let's say, one in the market and five in the in, in terms of development, then that's not worth ever doing because it's going to be crazy expensive. You don't even know if there is a solution and it helps no one. But something that's a five by one, in contrast, is something that will help everyone and you know you could do it easily. So I ranked Instafloss as a, a five by, by three, um, wherein everybody has teeth, everybody knows they ought to floss, and uh, nobody wants to. So I figured it was applicable to nearly everybody. Uh, you know, maybe give it a 4.5. You know, there's people who <laughs> uh, are, are, you know, are just going to floss the way they're comfortable flossing anyway. Um, with developments, you know, I actually thought the development was going to be way easier than it was. Uh, but we've been doing R&D for InstaFloss for five years. So I certainly did not anticipate just how involved it was going to be, both from an engineering uh, as well as a scientific uh, endeavor. So having gone through this process and as someone that is a serial inventor, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to the listeners who are perhaps starting to look to invent their own products for the first time? So I would say, well, it really depends on what your strengths are. You know, are you a scientist? Are you a engineer? Are you a savvy business person? Maybe you haven't invented a new product, but, you know, you've been a merchant and you've bought and sold products and done these advertising before. So, you know, what do you know and what don't you know? Be honest. Know what you don't know. Um, and then try to educate yourself as well as meet people and partner with the people who can supplement what you don't know. So, for example, I have invented products before and I have come out with eight products on the market. So I've been familiar with, you know, engineering as well as with, uh, you know, building a team and launching and marketing and so on and so forth. But when it came to the idea of InstaFloss, the two things that I realized I, I was not incredibly familiar with was, uh, number one, the specific fluid dynamic engineering for InstaFloss. I had never done a, a fluid product, you know, something that involved this sort of uh, mechanics. And the second was I needed a dental scientist partner who would really lead the um, every aspect of the development and the research and the iterations to make sure that the product actually was going to provide not only a floss, but the best floss possible. I mean, you could floss in zero seconds if you don't care about the results by just not flossing. So to me, it doesn't count. It's not a 10 second floss unless it's actually a real floss. So I partnered right from the beginning with Dr. Ralph Roud, uh, who is a fluid dynamics expert, and Dr. Anna Mascarenhas, who's the chair of the ADA Council of Scientific Affairs. And so with the three of us, and, you know, I'm coming from the perspective of, you know, we need to make it economical, mass manufacturable, so bringing that uh, um, knowledge in, and then with the fluid dynamics engineering as well as the um, dental science, uh, we were able to uh, make a great team, supplement each other, and really push the development forward. So what's that process like of building a team? Uh, 
how do exactly do you decide that whether somebody's right for the position or if that's the team that you need? Because correct me if I'm wrong, the team that you need at the start is going to be different from the team that you have at the end. Would you agree with that statement? Uh, yes, 100 uh, percent. So I think you've touched on two different things. The first is how do you know if somebody is right? Um, and that is <laughs> that is incredibly difficult, right? It's almost like a, a paradox in a way, because. How do you know that somebody knows something you don't know if you don't know it? That is not something that is by definition knowable. So, you know, you can look at a number of things. You can see what have they done before? Have they uh, actually uh, solved these issues in the past? And you can try to ask them detailed questions to suss out uh, if they were truly instrumental and, and truly knowledgeable. And then, you know, for example, like people who were very involved with something should know the details uh, on it. And then and then if you can bring in other people who are knowledgeable uh, about that sort of thing and have them interview them with you, they could um, let you know whether or not that person is, is you know, blowing smoke up or not. Uh, the second thing I would say is start small. You know, one mistake I've made in, in a previous company of mine is, you know, I didn't know anything about software engineering and I wanted to have a product that had some software elements to it. And I found the guy who I thought was going to be a great software engineer. And I'm like, we're going to hire this guy. We're going to make him the CTO. We're going to give him stock. He's going to own like a, a chunk of the company to, to motivate him, yada, yada, yada. Turns out he wasn't a good software engineer. And I had no idea. <laughs> you know, this was like 10 years ago and uh, I was very green and making all sorts of mistakes. Um, but what I should have done in that case was say like, hey, you appear to me a good software engineer. I have a vision of where this relationship can go, but let's start small. Let's start with this project. How about I hire you to accomplish one thing and I can see how do you work? How do you communicate? How fast are you? How honest do you appear? What is the quality of your results? So, you know, in a way, if you meet someone for the first time, you don't want to jump into a marriage. You know, you want to date first and then maybe uh, make it official and then maybe move in, you know, and then meet the parents and see if you could get along in a broader group. You know, sometimes people are great, but they don't get along with the rest of the team and that can poison the well. And these are a lot of things that you have to take into account. And therefore, you know, there's a mantra, uh, hire fast. Sorry, I messed that up. There's a mantra, hire slow, fire fast. So, you know, you, you and regarding firing fast, um, I think the way to fire fast is to have a metric of what you want to accomplish. So let's say you hire a marketer or you hire an engineer and you're like, okay, if this person's good, they should be able to accomplish X by date Y. And then if they haven't done that, you need to be like, look, this contract is automatically terminated. It's not me firing you. It's the rules we set out from before. Because otherwise, what you're going to do is a mistake that I've made is keep pushing the deadline. It's like I hired a marketer once and I was like, hey, you're going to really you know, blow this up. And then three months go by, nothing. Six months go by, nothing. Nine months go by, nothing. I'm like, well, he's, he's still working on it. You know, you have to have it from the get-go. Uh, so that's the, uh, the, the first question you asked, which was, how do you know if, if somebody is right? And that's very difficult. And the second question you asked is the team in the beginning is going to be different from the team in the end. I mean, that's true forever. I mean, even if there is, if there is an end, there perhaps isn't an end. Um, but the 
way to go about this, I think, is to start with the people who will do the work that immediately needs to be done. So people have an idea, uh, and this is a big mistake, that if you're going to start a company, you need to start with someone who is the, the chief technical officer position, the chief marketing officer position, these sorts of things. But if you have a two-person company or a three-person company, you don't need a manager. There's nothing to manage. You need someone who can do the work. You need someone in the trenches. Therefore, you don't need a you know uh, engineering manager. You need an engineer. You don't need a marketing manager. You need a, a marketer. And then maybe if everything goes well and you have a product and you're selling and things are going great, and now you hired another guy and another guy and another guy, now you have 10 engineers and 10 marketers, now you need a manager. Uh, but, you know, people, they, they think that they uh, need a hire from the top down, when I think the truth is you need a hire from the bottom up. You need to start with the people who are doing the actual work and then only add the fluff later if that's truly necessary. So another thing that we can talk about as somebody who's built startups is, of course, funding. Funding is very important for startup companies. People argue it is the sort of the blood of the company effectively and without it you're not really going to get anywhere so i'm aware that in terms of funding that you had a kickstarter campaign which you used to raise funds why did you decide to go down that route in particular in comparison to the more traditional methods of raising capital right so if you raise the earlier in your company stage that you raise capital, the higher of a percentage they're going to take per dollar because you are at an earlier stage, you've developed less, you've proven yourself less, there's a higher risk. So it makes sense. If you have a product that is consumer facing where you know that people can get excited about it, if you pre-sell the product to them, you can do a number of things in one stroke. You can gain funding that you need. You can, you can not dilute the equity that you have in the company unnecessarily or to such a great extent. And most importantly, you can prove the, the demand. So if we go to investors and we hadn't done a, a Kickstarter campaign and we say, we have been developing a product, it's going to floss all your teeth, look at, look at all the amount of people who don't floss, we want to come to the market with this. An investor might try to, you know, hard, hard bargain you and say something like, well, you know, maybe 70% of people don't floss because they're never going to floss. And we don't really know if they, if even if they would floss with a good device, we don't know if your solution is appealing to people. It hasn't been tested. It hasn't been proven. Nobody has bought this. Therefore, it's highly risky. And therefore, I'm going to take a very high percentage of the company for my very risky investment. But if you go to Kickstarter and you've pre-sold a whole bunch of units, and we have pre-sold $2.5 million worth of InstaFloss, then we can go to an investor and be like, look, people are frothing at the bit for this. They really, really, really want the solution. So yeah, of course, there's still risks involved with investing. There's always risks involved. There's risks right now if you want to invest in Google, you know, but uh, there, there never are no risks. It's only what is the level of risk. And so if you have proven demand, you have reduced one of the risks. So another point on that, in your experience, when you are pitching your idea to potential investors or somebody's going to partner with your company, what would you say are the sort of traits that these guys are looking for? That's really hard to answer because the one 
rule I, I think I've learned over pitching to investors. And we have also gone that route. We we started with our Kickstarter campaign. I was I was self-funding the company at first uh, due to the previous uh, companies that I had created. So I had the luxury of self-funding for a bit, but only to a bit. Uh, then we did the Kickstarter campaign. We proved demand. We got more uh, funding. But like I said, this is a five-year R&D process. So I have then gone pitched investors and we have raised money from investors as well. And they are all so different. Everything you read online, is like they want it this way. They need you to tell a story. They need you to be bare bones. They need it to be pretty. They don't care about the aesthetics. The only thing I could say is you really need to find people who are relevant to you and you need to pitch a lot of people. Like if you have less than 200 meetings lined up, uh, don't be don't expect to to get any sort of funding uh, because these people really receive like 500 emails a day. You know, there's a lot more ideas out there than there is money. <laughs> and so uh, it, it's very hard to break through, even if you do have a great idea, even if your product is worthwhile, and even if you are going to be successful, even if everybody knows it, it's not necessarily the right move for them at that time. Because one thing that I didn't know about the inner workings of VC funds was they have sort of specific timelines. When they first get a bunch of money together, they're like, we need companies that are going to mature in seven years. And then the next year, they're like, we need companies that are going to mature in six and then in five and so on. So that way, all their companies mature at the seven-year mark. And that way, they can go to their investors and say, hey, we received all this money. And look, we turned it into all this money. Now we want to raise more because investors are who have funds are still raising money from other investors. So they have their own timelines. And even if your idea is great, it might not work on their timeline. And one of the things they might be looking at um, in your pitch is... Does this align with our timeline? So, so even so, even if they say no, it's not necessarily a um, indication that your idea is bad. Um, but you do get better the more you do it. So you just have to do it a lot, and it's tough. But there's there's resources out there, and take it all with a grain of salt. And I think one thing to do is don't try to just check the boxes of what you think they need make sure that the story makes sense to what you're trying to say. So, you know, you might have like a pitch deck that's like, oh, you need to have this slide and that slide and that slide. But the truth is not all of it is relevant for you or to the story you're trying to tell. Make sure it makes sense. Make sure it's conversational. Definitely so, because you're not just selling your product, you're also selling your vision, who you are as an individual. And I think some companies do miss out on that story. You know, people want to have an interesting story behind a company. Yeah, I mean, there's everything is a variable, right? Because it's not just your product, but, you know, can you actually do it? Can you manufacture it? Can you lead a team? Can you raise funds? Can you be responsible with finances? Can you market it? You know, not always the best product wins because there's so many other factors. I mean, one of the greatest examples of this, I think, in the broader technology world is the QWERTY keyboard. We all use, 99% of us use a QWERTY keyboard, but QWERTY was designed to prevent typewriters from jamming. So it's actually an inefficient, it's a bad keyboard uh, from the perspective of keyboards these days that don't jam. So you would think from a pure theoretical perspective that uh, a keyboard, any other keyboard would take over 
uh, beyond beyond the QWERTY. But no, we're stuck with it because legacy is real and inertia is real. And so, you know, you can't just say that you will invent a better mousetrap and then the world will build a path to your door. You have to build a path to their door. And that's one of the things investors are looking at. They could say like, look, you have a better product. I 100% believe that this product should be the number one, but I don't trust your ability to do that, or even my ability as an investor to support you in doing that. A lot of investors, they want to invest to something where they can help because that way they can provide some extra value to make sure that you're actually going to succeed here. Uh, they don't want to invest in things that won't succeed. So if they don't feel like they could actually influence it, they might back out for that reason. So I'm aware prior to Instafloss, you also co-founded another company called Singular Sound. So how exactly did you transition from sort of musical equipment into flossing? How did that process happen? Um, so it came with the realization of just how relevant InstaFloss would be to everyone. You know, uh, so the perhaps the initial inception was I was eating mango with my brother and a bunch of stuff was stuck in our teeth. And we're like, man, I really wish there was a device to just do this automatically. This is like, you know, really cumbersome. And then multiple people over the next few weeks were like, hey, you make products. Can you make something that flosses? And I'm like, how big is this problem? Oh, holy moly, 70% of people don't floss. Oh, holy moly, the rest of them are not actually getting good results because they floss bad. Everybody has teeth. Everybody knows they should floss. Nobody wants to. A device that could do this would, would just really be as big as it gets. And so I couldn't sleep for a month. And I was like, this is the big one. This is the one that I have to pursue. And it was a tough decision because I had a company I founded with my brother. Uh, we had come out with many products. It was successful. We were growing. You know, we had a team. You know, I really liked the team. But sometimes you just have to pursue the thing that you know is the big one. So what are your plans for the future with InstaFloss? Are you just focusing on the one product or are you perhaps looking at different applications and maybe expanding the portfolio in the future? We are going to be expanding the portfolio. Um, I can't talk about everything because we're still in the patent process and uh, we can't reveal until patents are granted. Uh, we do have multiple granted patents on InstaFloss, so I'm more than happy to talk about that. But yes, we will be expanding the InstaFloss line uh, we're going to have different versions of it for specific needs. Uh, you know, there's disabled people who perhaps are more, dis uh, who, even though we reduce human error, you do need to be able to move it. So we have the ability to reach a broader audience, children, portable versions, so on. We even have people who are encouraging us to make versions for pets. I'm not hundred percent sure if we're going to pursue that. <laughs> that sounds, uh, uh, the difficulty there is that there are so many different mouth shapes, uh, you know, with pets. So I don't know if we're going to be doing that, but uh, but we certainly have been encouraged to. The market is is large, and their oral health is horrendous. So there certainly is a need. Um, but we actually do have some hygiene products that you should be following us for, because probably within the next year or two, we're going to announce some very interesting things that are going to make. The rest of your hygiene just as simple and easy as InstaFloss uh, will make your flossing. Definitely. I'll keep an eye out for those products. So being an inventor and running a business, of course, is very time intensive. But in the small amount of free time that you do get, what do you get up to? That depends on how much free time I have. 
<laughs> if if I only have like an hour, honestly, I'm just going to read something uh, because I, I find like the more you focus on one thing, the more you need to get your mind off of it to perform better at that focus. You know, if, if you're just focusing on your job for 12 hours a day, it's probably an optimal. You know, I would say that <laughs> this might be counterintuitive advice, but work less and get your mind on something else more. And then when you come back to it, you will be so much stronger at it. It's like if you're an athlete and you're always contracting your quads, but you never do anything with your hamstrings, eventually that's going to cause a problem. So especially with something that involves creative thinking, uh, where you might have a problem that you don't know how to get around, going away from that problem, thinking about something as different as possible could uh, metaphorically stretch the mind. Uh, so, you know, I like reading about really things as different as possible uh, from anything that I'm used to. You know, if I continue reading the same genre, I feel like in a way, you know, you're you're doing that sort of contraction of thinking. So you want to think about as many different things as possible, especially areas that you're not expert in at all. Um, but if I get more free time, and this is relatively rare, but I always look forward to this, is... I spend so much time at a desk. I spend so much time sitting, looking at a screen, looking at technology, uh, tinkering with things, look, engineering files, you name it, even sitting down and reading. I really, really enjoy getting out to the wilderness and uh, doing wilderness survival, doing some backcountry camping, just taking what I can in my backpack and living for as long as I can out there. And when you get rid of all technology, you really see the benefits of what you need and what is superfluous? And you start thinking about technology in a, in a different way. You know, when you don't have AC, when you don't have running water, when you don't have any of these things. And, you know, I would say that the, that getting rid of it all, you know, relaxes the brain and sort of stretches the mind in a way where you're definitely more fresh when you come back to thinking about technology again. So I definitely like getting rid of it as much as I can. <laughs> you know, living like a caveman and then and then coming back and be like, okay, now we see why they invented fire. <laughs> Let's see what else we can do. I agree with you. Sometimes you just get caught up in the day-to-day -day activities that you sort of, you lose that free thinking part of your mind. And I'm guessing like when you go to the wilderness, you probably come up with some really wonderful ideas that you perhaps otherwise wouldn't come up with in your day-to-day -day activities. Wonderful or, or, or terrible, but you know, that's all part of the process. The, the best way to have a good idea is to have a lot of ideas. So I think don't be discouraged if number one, your uh, nine out of 10 of your ideas are bad. That means you're thinking a lot and that's great. And then don't be discouraged if every time you do have a good idea, you go and you look and you see someone already came up with it, drats. No, that's proof that there's demand, that you're on the right track. You're thinking about things people want because look, it's being sold on Amazon and people are buying it. You had a great idea. Someone just had a great idea first. Like the... Uh, Two people filed uh, patents for the telephone within hours of each other, Alexander Graham Bell and the other guy we can't remember because he was second. So <laughs> it doesn't mean that, that your idea is, is bad. If anything, it should be encouraging. It just means keep thinking, keep coming up with stuff, keep doing whatever uh, you know encourages your creative process and keep at it. So Ellie, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. What one piece of advice would you be leaving the listeners with? Wow, that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> one piece of advice. I think 
always think about if there is a better solution for something and constantly be tinkering with that. Don't be afraid to have bad answers because eventually you're going to strike something gold. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great chat. Thank you for listening to episode 42 of the MedTech podcast. If you have not already done so, please subscribe. If you wish to learn more about Ali, you can connect with him on LinkedIn or visit his company website, the links of which are provided in the description alongside a link to his website. If there are any particular topics or guests you would like for me to have on the show in the future, then feel free to reach out.